Hi, this is John Hand, and on this episode of Sci-Fi Showcase, I'm joined by filmmaker Mike Gray to discuss his 1983 film, Wavelength. In July of this year, the United States Army was conducting top-secret tests of the MV-2 tank-mounted laser at Hunter Liggett Military Reservation. During the third series of tests on July 23 at approximately 2230 GMT, several military and civilian employees present noted a luminous object hovering over Nascimento Pass at a distance of about 6,000 yards. The event was also noted by the OC, who then directed the civilian test crew to fire the laser at the object. There were several blinding flashes, then the object wavered and fell nearly perpendicular. The area was immediately cordoned off. Radiation and health physics teams were flown in and the DIA notified. Upon inspection, the object appeared to be an alien craft built by intelligent beings with an unknown source of power. More significantly, it contained the remains of four humanoid creatures who were apparently operating the craft. Now, Wavelength tells the story of a down-in-his-luck musician played by Robert Carradine who lives in the Hollywood Hills in a house directly above a secret military facility where three aliens are being held in captivity. The aliens begin to communicate telepathically with Robert Carradine's girlfriend, played by a Runaways lead singer turned actress Cherie Curry, and Curry, along with Carradine and a wily prospector played by Keenan Wynn, affect the aliens' escape. They smuggle the aliens to the desert where they rendezvous with their rescue ship, which is this gigantic metallic orb very reminiscent of the end of Starman, and escape the planet. Wavelength was shot in December of 1981, and the year of 1982 was, in some sense, the year of the benevolent alien. E.T. was released that year, along with John Carpenter's The Thing, and apparently uh, the release of Wavelength was delayed until 1983 due to all this stiff competition. The film was sold as this very generic sci-fi thriller, but it's far more than that. The writer-director, Mike Gray, came from a documentary background. He created a very important documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton, and he imbues this film with a kind of documentary realism. The film is primarily shot and handheld, and it's a different type of film. And the film, over the years, has garnered a kind of cult following on video due to its kind of unique nature. Now, I had the chance to interview Mike Gray recently, and he discusses his origins in filmmaking, the documentary film, and the production of The China Syndrome, as well as Wavelength and some other projects he's been involved in. After my documentary career, I, I pretty much had to leave Chicago after the murder of Fred Hampton. The cops were being very unfriendly, uh, and I, I went, I, I was driving a... Uh, a big red BMW motorcycle at that time, and I went over to uh, the garage down the street in Chicago where I kept the motorcycle. As I rolled it off the kickstand, I happened to notice that the front tire had been diagonally sliced down to the cords. And I figured that was a good signal (laughs) that it was time to get out of Chicago. And I had always been thinking in terms of uh, doing something serious in Hollywood, but I had no no theatrical training, no background in theater. I was trained as an aeronautical engineer. So uh, I... uh, moved to Hollywood and, and interviewed a very good, uh, my, my wife's cousin, Jimmy Hirsch, who is to this day still my writing partner, but he said, uh, you know, uh, you want to write a screenplay? He just graduated from the University of uh, Wisconsin, and he said, uh, uh, the, the way to be a director in Hollywood is you got to have a property, and the easiest way to have a property is to write one yourself. And uh, if you want to write a screenplay, it's very simple. Conflict, resolution, character development, and a chase. And don't stop at page 20 and read it, or you'll never finish it. You know, you'll just you'll keep fixing the first 20 pages. So uh, he said, once you've got a screen, once you've got 106 pages, then you have a screenplay that needs work. But it's a hell of a lot different than having, you know, just 20 pages. So I walked across the street and saw a uh, paperback book in the in the bookstore. John, I don't know, just jumped out at me. It was called Poisoned Power by Dr. John Goffman, and it was about the problems, the technical problems with nuclear power. So. I figured it's going to take me, you know, years to learn how to do this. I'd better be interested in the subject 
that I'm writing about or, you know, because generally what people did was, what most people do is come to Hollywood, write a script, and then circulate it, and it doesn't go anywhere, and they write another one and another one and so forth. I figured the thing to do is keep writing the same one until you get it right. So that turned out to be the China Syndrome for which I was nominated for an Academy Award. But uh, I still was, I, I, I was originally scheduled to direct that picture, but it got out of hand. Once Fonda came on board, there was no way that she was going to settle for a first-time director. She was at the top of her career at that moment. So then I realized, well, okay, I've got to write a low-budget feature if I'm going to be a director. And that was, the result was Wavelength. I had uh, gone to Big Sur on a vacation and came up the mountain behind Big Sur back to 101 on a gravel road that ran through Hunter Liggett Military Reservation. And uh, there was a training camp for tank warfare at that time, huge forests and, and mountainous terrain and so forth. And as we were driving through, we saw, you know, like, it's combat tanks moving through the forest and stuff like that. And um, so that stuck in my mind, and I just was speculating, what if uh, they had a, a laser weapon up there that they were working on and testing it in that secret, you know, forest up there? And a UFO appeared, and the guy who was running later tests said, "Shoot that down, you know, put it on." And so it just it it built on that idea. And I was living at that time uh, up on top of the Hollywood Hills on a uh, Crest Drive. Uh, my wife and I had a, an A-frame that we we rented up there, and and uh, we were it was on a little gravel road, and just at the end of that gravel road was this log cabin that had been up there in those mountains since the day that, uh, well, since World War II, um, the, uh, uh, it, it was an old, uh, uh, back in the, in the early days of Hollywood, some stars and starlets had cabins up in that part of Laurel Canyon, way up near the top. And, Bobby Carradine was living in David Carradine's house, which was a small log cabin, the one that's in the movie. And uh, from his balcony, you could look down into the canyon at this huge facility there uh, called uh, uh, Lookout Mountain Air Force Base. And it had been built in great haste in the months immediately after Pearl Harbor, they, the uh, um, United States Army Air Corps built this facility as a film processing laboratory for, it turned out to be for all the Pacific Theater gun camera footage and combat footage and so forth, came back to that lab at the, up the top of Laurel Canyon for processing. And uh, you couldn't go up there without it. You had to have a, a military pass to get up the Wonderland Drive. And this cement block building is very impressive. And, and uh, you know, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it, it had been shuttered and, uh, and was being used, I think, I don't know, as a storage facility or something like that. But uh, I knew this old miner, old prospector, that I would see from time to time, and he and I would talk. And uh, he lived literally in a tent down on the Hollywood side of that of the mountain, just below Crest Drive. And uh, uh, this old guy Dan was what he would do is he'd come into L.A. live in this tent, and he'd do odd jobs around the you know the neighborhood and whatnot. And when he'd accumulated enough money to go back out to the desert, he would pack up and, you know, uh, put his tent away and go out into the Mojave and go back to prospecting someplace up around, you know, Mount Telescope or somewhere. And uh, so, uh, and Bobby Carradine and I got to be friends simply because we were neighbors. And I just put those four things together, you know, and created that screenplay out of whole cloth, and uh, and um, it's totally imaginary. I've been called several times by people who wanted to know 
you know, if there really was something going on at Hunter Liggett Military Reservation, and was there really an underground air base under Lookout Mountain, and da 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 da. And I keep reassuring people that this I made this whole thing up, <laughs> but that doesn't seem to satisfy the conspiracy theorists. They think that I'm covering for the federal government that there really was a UFO shot down, and so forth. So, <clears throat> but it's um, it's. So far as I know, John, <laughs> it came entirely from my imagination, unless uh, you believe thought control. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, because there are a lot of conspiracy theorists online who still believe that this film was based on a real incident. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're right, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I just, uh, you know, write about what you know about. Well, I knew Bobby Carradine, and I knew about that airbase, and I knew this old prospector, and... Uh, the the girl was just a uh, you know a unifying factor, and then the other thing, of course, coming from a documentary, I was determined to shoot this movie handheld, which was not done in Hollywood at that time. In fact, that was one reason I did not get to direct the China Syndrome because Fonda and I had a meeting, and she said, "What's this I hear about you want to shoot this handheld?" And I said, well, it's a documentary technique that, you know, is very exciting. And uh, you, uh, you, you know, you, you accumulate a tremendous amount of footage and you, put, you do the actual cutting, uh, I mean, the building of the story in the editing room. But you shoot everything and you shoot it all on, you know, real locations and 360 degrees and whatnot. And she put her hand on my arm and she said, Mike, I'm 40 and hard to light. And I knew, and I knew that my uh, concept for a handheld uh, version of the China Syndrome was flittering out the window, along with my directorial career, right at that moment. But I have tremendous respect for Fonda, and uh, and she's a wonderful actress and a very decent human being. So uh, we were fine. I, I stepped aside, and uh, and uh, Douglas, she and Douglas got Jim Bridges, who did a wonderful job of rewriting the script for Fonda. That part had to be expanded in the China Syndrome. So basically, uh, the film was just a proof of concept uh, project for me to show that, yes, you could shoot a handheld movie for an incredibly low budget, and, and it would look big if you were using all real locations. So uh, the airbase was real. Bobby's cabin was where he was living, you know. And the dog in the movie was Bobby's dog, you know. And uh, the uh, I originally had planned... There was a, a young girl up in in the canyon named Khaki Hunter, and she was absolutely magnetic and uh, and a good actress too. She she played uh, she was the female in Porky's, a really cute girl and, and, a, and a great actress. And uh, when I got her into the uh, audition before the, uh, uh, Jamie Rosenfeld and his father. Um, they said, "I said, you know, what do you think? She's perfect. The artist character, you know, she had the qualities of a, you know, a flower child, and and and, and uh, the kind of person. If you were an alien, she would be the one who would hear you screaming. You know what I mean? She was. She was certainly fitted precisely for the part. And they said, but she has a crooked front tooth." I said, well, yeah, and they said, well, we were having mind, you know, somebody who has more the look of the '80s, and uh, they picked Cherie Curry. We were we were doing rehearsals and having some difficulty, and finally she came up to me and she said, look, I'm. I was taken out of high school when I was 16, and sent to Japan as a rock star. I never finished high school. And she said, I, I love this script, but there's a lot of stuff in here that I don't understand. Like this line where, where uh, uh, I opened the refrigerator here in Bobby's cabin, and uh, it's full of, you know, every conceivable thing. And she says, I know art when I see it. You should just ship this thing off to the Guggenheim. And uh, she said, what's the Guggenheim? So... I knew at that moment 
that this, although although Cherie was not the actress that I would have picked for this part, I knew we were going to have a, a good time and that she was going to be okay because if she could say that to the director, I, I don't understand this word in this script here, at least we were going to have an honest relationship. And I said, you don't you worry about that at all. We can handle this problem, you know. And I went through and explained to her all the background, the backstory, anything like that. So it all worked out, and we we are still friends. I mean, you know, I talked to her, I don't know, a few months ago, and uh, she did a great job, and I was very pleased with uh, her performance, and, and so it all worked out. Just calm calm down. This can be fixed. That's, <laughs> that's the problem, you know, right? Now, I want to talk a little bit about the cinematography of this film because, you know, we we say it's a handheld documentary type feel, but it, it's a very, very controlled like European type of handheld operating where everything's smooth and in focus, and it's it's not what we think of handheld today, where it's this kind of shaky cam, barely intelligible, what's going on on screen, that type of thing. Paul Goldsmith was the cameraman. Uh, speed was what I was after. And authenticity, not you know um, I, that that, that uh, fake handheld stuff. I said at the time, you know that uh, what Hollywood will devolve toward is a uh, you 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 remember the war L gearhead, you know it's the two hand cranks on it, you know. I said, believe me, one of these days, Warrell will come out with an automatic gearhead that you can dial in the amount of shake that you want, and the machine will just do the gears uh, randomly, you know, to make the the camera seem like it's handheld, you know. But uh, and that's basically what they did. I mean, I forgot which one was the the major uh, offender when they first uh, went that in that route in television. I think it was Hill Street Blues or something like that, but. It was very interesting, but I mean, nobody, no, any any documentary cameraman that shot like that would have been fired on the first day. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to wander off the star and shoot the closet or whatever. I mean, but that was their interpretation of handheld photography. But uh, we were Goldsmith was was working the other end of the game. He was a very very experienced photographer for uh, cameraman for. Uh, uh, TV TV. He was one of the founders of TV TV, and of course they were all they were the first guys to use reel to reel video machines, portable video machines, and stuff like that. So th- they were all concentrating on making their footage look as good as it possibly could, even though it was handheld, and uh, and that's what we were after. Now I've read some early articles about Wavelength, which indicate that it was a project that was originally set up at Warner Brothers. Is there any truth to that? It was always the Rosenfeld project. The uh, Rosenfelds were living in Chicago, and Maurice Rosenfeld was a very successful Broadway producer. He would get money out of Chicago to finance Broadway plays, and I've forgotten he did. He did. Uh, I think I don't know some major, something like Barnum. Anyhow, he, he did a, a big, uh, um, successful. Uh, Broadway play, and a friend of, of his and mine in Chicago, a guy named Don Rose, who's still there, he's a political commentator, uh, worked for uh, the Sun-Times and, uh, and uh, the Daily News at one point, and he knew Maury Rosenfeld, and he had read the script for Wavelength, and he said, Maurice, you should read this thing, and Maury then called me and said, you know, let's talk, so I flew to Chicago. He lived up in uh, 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 the North Shore, uh, you know, uh, uh, Winnetka or something like that, uh, north of Chicago. And we had a very nice meeting and came to terms almost immediately, and we made the deal like in a couple of days. I don't, I don't know any of the details of the distribution deals that they set up, but uh, I do know that uh, you know it did not, it was not nearly as successful as it should have been, given the fact that people are still you know, trying to get hold of copies of it now all these years later. But um, it satisfied my fundamental requirement. I had a credit as a director on a, on a Hollywood low-budget feature. And um, that was what I was aiming for with the whole idea because I was really, not being able to direct the China Syndrome 
in that style, which I, that's, you know, like, that's what I wanted to see was that kind of, that level of handheld authenticity and speed. You, you, you get, you know, and if you're shooting documentary style, you're shooting 60 to 1. That's routine. Everybody does that. You know, film is cheap. You keep going and get, you know, like, the problem comes when you're moving from point A to point B. When you've got to strike all the goddamn screens and lights and scrims and cables and whatnot, and then you move the entire crew to another scene, and they got to set all that shit up. And, da, da, da. and um, the worst night that I had in um, shooting Wavelength was the cathedral scene, which for me was the whole point of the movie. That was that was the one idea I had early on. I, uh, that's, that scene was what I was working for, it, in that movie, and it's the scene where Bobby and Iris come into this church with the uh, three kids, and they they're on the run, and they walk in, and and you know Iris says, uh, you know we, we got to do something with the and uh, and Bobby comes up with a box of clothes, and uh, she says. I mean, you know, clothes from the from the basement of the church, and uh, and Iris says, no, they won't put on clothes, Bobby. They're photosynthetic. They get their, you know, they get their nourishment from from light, and they're not going to put clothes on. And he says, you know, Iris, we can't run around even in Hollywood with three naked kids. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's not going to work. And they're, they're having this argument when all of a sudden the kids freeze. And they start putting on the clothes by themselves, and they turn around and see what the kids are looking at. And there on the wall is this sculpture of this human being nailed to this cross. And that's when they, they realize, well, that's how we treat naked people on this planet, and they start putting the clothes on well, I'll tell you what happened that night. This is another interesting idea. The, the, <laughs> we got there in mid-afternoon, and it's got to be a nighttime scene. So the crew, it was, you know, one, one fuck up in planning. Uh, we arrived there, you know, and the crew spent like three hours blocking the lights on these huge you know, stained glass windows, hanging tarps on the outside to keep the sun out so that we could shoot it as if it was night. And by the time we were finished with that, it was night. <laughs> so it was three hours totally wasted on mechanical bullshit. And uh, and that's, you know, just the cardinal sin as far as I'm concerned. But it was, it was nobody's fault. We were running as fast as we could, and it just happened that way. But anyhow, while they were going through this, one of the grips came up to me and said, boss, I think you've got problems with your star. And, uh, I, what happened? I said, well, uh, the producer went to her trailer and said that, uh, you had not selected her for the part that, that it was the producer who, who, uh, you know, had insisted on her and that was the reason that she was in the picture trying I guess to ingratiate himself with uh, Cherie and uh, she was absolutely crushed to find out that she was actually second choice in, in, in my in my eyes and and um, so uh, one of the other grips was overhearing his conversation said uh, Boss, would you want me to to drop a sandbag on the kid's head? <laughs> and I said, No, no, I don't think that's going to help at all. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll go talk to Sheree. And I went out to her trailer and I said, Look, this is what what he, he said was actually true. You were the second choice I had in mind, Khaki Hunter. But I said, You know, you have done a fabulous job on this picture. After we had that conversation about the refrigerator, I said, there, There's no problem from 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 then on, you really knocked this thing out of the park. I couldn't have, you know, and, and there's you're, you did a wonderful job. And she was greatly relieved, and she comes in to shoot that scene finally. And, of course, she looked like she'd been hit in the face with a two-by-four as a result of all that contretemps. And uh, as it happened, that worked perfectly in that scene. And when 
she's walking down that aisle there, you know, like with that stunned look on her face. She wasn't acting. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it just happened to dovetail. I got lucky uh, several times in that picture. And, and uh, but that, that scene for me was, uh, I thought it worked very well, just exactly as I had had uh, seen it in my mind. So, and the kids were fabulous. Jesus, you know, uh, uh, the, the uh, we got, I mean, that one kid, I've forgotten his name, but he's, he was an anorexic Chinese Jew. Was that Dov Young? Yeah. And, uh, and when he comes up out of that fog after Bobby breaks the, the, the chambers that they're, you know, frozen in, and uh, there's a cloud of, of uh, condensation from the from the, f- the frozen cells that they've just been liberated from, and that kid's head comes up out of the clouds. Man, he he looked like an alien, <laughs> and it was very similar. We we talked their parents into and the kids into letting us shave their heads completely and uh, glue their ears back so that they were you know the ears were as close to the skull as they could get. And um, and even shaved their eyebrows, so uh, the kids didn't care, and their parents went along with it. And uh, so that was how we solved the thing with with just you no know, body stockings, so that they appeared naked. Though of course they weren't. You know, one thing I want to talk about is this film. I think many many people have characterized it as kind of a reaction to E.T. because even the back of the original Embassy VHS box art has a quote from the L.A. Times reviewer who says Wavelength has the same sentiments as E.T. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's a I guess a good promotional tool. But it seems like it was improperly marketed there. Yeah, well, it was written, of course, before E.T. and uh, E.T. came out. The concept of a friendly alien, you know, these these uh, these uh, three kids were just tourists. You know, they stopped by to see what was going on, got accidentally shot out of the sky. So I thought that was, an, you know, a, a unique idea. But by the time after E.T., that was no longer, uh, you know, like uh, that uh, original concept. So, And the other thing is, of course, Michael Douglas used the... Uh, the end scene uh, of uh, that that uh, spherical spaceship up over the uh, the desert, and um, I came up with the idea for how to how to shoot that for next to nothing. Uh, this this arrival of that spherical spaceship was. Uh, you're familiar with the fisheye lens, right? It's, you know, like a 180-degree image, but it's it's circular on the screen. And uh, so what we did was we got got a still camera with a fisheye lens. We put a boom out in front of this uh, Bell uh, uh, Ranger helicopter that put the, mounted the camera beyond the the blade so that you wouldn't see the blade in that 180 degree image and uh, we uh, flew the helicopter up over uh, the top of Mount Telescope uh, in the, in the, uh, out there in the desert and we set our camera up on uh, we shot the scene of the where the spaceship was to land from a mountain on the other side looking at on telescope, and this thing, uh, the the helicopter shot. Uh, I told the pilot, you know, come over the top of the mountain and and descend as rapidly as possible. And the camera was motorized, so it was taking you know frame two frames a second or something like that. And uh, the resulting footage was a spherical image that showed the reflection. What was apparently the reflection of this this chromium sphere that was arriving, and uh, all we did was just uh, mat that into uh, our uh, the image we had shot of the the empty desert, and you see this sphere come into the picture and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's, it looks like it's chromium because you see it's a mirror image of the valley that we're in, and it worked. And um, 
so that we we got that for you know like I mean that that was I mean it would now be no trick at all to do that optically you know or digitally I mean that's that would be a simple problem but in 1980 that was not the case so that was a, a kind of a bizarre solution and uh, but it but it uh, it worked anyhow and, and then of course Douglas used that same not that not that same technique but the same image for the uh, end last scene in Starman for and he apologized but he said you know I'm sorry I had to use that that's, <laughs> that's okay with me I owed him a favor anyway so um, but uh, yeah there the, the people assumed that that uh, that movie was a ripoff of ET and other things and in fact it was actually done before all that but it was just uh, as you say, improperly marketed. Speaking of Starman, how did you get involved in the Starman television series? Well, the the Starman television series uh, came about because um, Michael Douglas, of course, wrote, I mean, he, he produced the movie Starman with Bridges, and he owned the rights to the to the story, and uh, Jimmy Hirsch, the, the the guy who taught me how to write screenplays, uh, he convinced Douglas. I don't know how. I, I, I don't know where he got the idea, but but uh, he may, he contacted Michael Douglas and uh, said, uh, you know. Uh, let's make this into a TV series. And Douglas said, great idea. So he and Hirsch uh, made a deal, I forget with whom, to uh, produce it with Columbia Pictures. That's it. Warner Brothers, maybe. It was on the old Warner lot, but I think we were working for Columbia. That that was when, when Columbia uh, closed their Gower Street studios stupidly and uh, moved to the Warner lot. And it was... It was jointly operated, which turned out to be a really bad idea. But in any event, so so we were we had a a deal, uh, and and Jimmy asked me to write and shoot the pilot, direct the pilot, which I did, and uh, we had some technical problems. Uh, we we were the first people to use that. Uh, editing technique where, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a period of time before they digitized uh, the process where you could do um, editing on the fly. It was, was, they had like 15 or 20 copies of each scene on, on VHS cassettes and they were all stacked together but they could uh, each one was uh, positioned in such a way that you could cut from one machine to the next within a split second so it gave you the illusion of uh, of you know like what later came to be commonplace with, with uh, you know digital editing and it was mimicked in um, by this mechanical process and the night before we were supposed to turn it into uh, ABC, to uh, ABC, I guess it was the network that they were working with, um, and it was a big presentation. The goddamn machine just completely backfired, you know, and and we lost everything. And uh, and Jimmy Hirsch called the the you know the, the head of uh, of uh, what was her name? She was the producer on that thing for for, uh, for Columbia. Anyhow, ABC. So they said, what do you mean you've lost everything? How can that happen? How can that happen? And Jimmy calmly said, well, you know, they just lost one of the, uh, the, the, the they, they just lost the space shuttle. So shit happens. And that's, uh, we can't do anything about it. You know, you're not, we're, we're going to reconstitute this, but it's going to take us another week. So by the time it was turned in, 
everybody loved the, the picture, but there were, it was, you know, since I had talked them into using that editing technique, they wanted to bounce me from the project. And uh, as, you know, uh, they were a director, writer, producer, director. And uh, Michael Douglas stepped in at that point and said, absolutely not. Mike Gray is running this picture. That's unequivocal. So I got to say, the Douglas family, uh, they're serious. <laughs> you, they, they give you a handshake. That's all you need. You, you can trust them with uh, your life. And, uh, and so Michael, uh, you know, really came through for me in that case. And uh, uh, we, we had a wonderful time on that show. And it was really well received. And we had a huge fan base and everything like that. But they moved us. Because it was successful, it was one of the things that typically happens in television. It was so successful, they moved us to uh, uh, up against some other show, and our ratings dropped through the floor, and we didn't get uh, renewed for the next season. So had we made one more season, it would probably you know, have run for five years, and I'd be fabulously wealthy. But that's show business, you know. Now, from Starman, you went on to writing and producing for Star Trek The Next Generation. I was interested in how you got involved with uh, Next Generation and Gene Roddenberry there. Yeah, that was uh, simply uh, the, the, one of the producers on, on uh, Star Trek uh, talked to my agent and uh, hired us for one season of uh, Star Trek Next Generation. And that was an interesting experience. Um, the uh, the setup on the operation uh, at uh, Paramount Pictures was less than ideal. Uh, they had Gene Roddenberry, who was of course the executive producer and owner of the show uh, and originator of the show. Um, he was living down in La Costa, and he had hired two guys, one as the producer. They were co-equal producers, so the show had two producers. One guy running the, the writing back in the main office building there on the lot, and the other producer running the stage where all the sets and the actors and everything like that, and never the twain shall meet. And there was always conflict. And I realized finally why Roddenberry had set that up because every once in a while there would be an argument between the two, uh, you know, senior producers uh, over what to do about a scene or some problem with an actor or whatever. And uh, they would have a knockdown, dragout fight. And Gene Roddenberry would have, they'd call him and he would arrive at the studio very dramatically in his Rolls Royce, which chauffeur driven, you know, would come to the lot and everybody would breathlessly wait and he would get out and hear the various arguments and then he would make his decision and, and uh, uh, you know, resolve the issue and then get back in his limo and be chauffeured back to La Costa. And, uh, so uh, it occurred to me that you know that that, that was Roddenberry's design to stay in charge and to to be you know to be the 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 man of the moment to solve all these problems. So he enjoyed that aspect of the thing. It drove the rest of us a little crazy, but uh, so I did not uh, you know I was less than satisfied with uh, the way the thing was running because. Uh, there were these these internal conflicts made it very very difficult to uh, get any ideas through you know and of course they really didn't want any ideas uh, at the original meeting which took place at uh, Kate Madalini's in a booth uh, with the head producer of, of Star Trek and Roddenberry I think was there um, they you know liked my writing and then thought that, uh, you know, I'd be an asset to the, uh, to the writing team on Star Trek. And, uh, I, uh, said, well, you know, I'm, I'm reality based. And I said, you know, uh, uh, Star Wars had just come out. And I said, you know, that to me is, uh, was a real breakthrough because the fighters, 
in uh, you know the the X X wing fighters or whatever and all, all I mean they they had oil streaks coming out of the vents like a real airplane you know as like an aircraft you see the leaks and there was stuff you know um, and um, I made an argument for for you know reality and Roddenberry said no no. Uh, this is in the 25th century, and problems like that have all been resolved. So that's why it's all perfect and spotless and gleaming, and I couldn't argue with that. But it was a fundamental difference of, uh, of philosophy about, you know, I mean, I like I said, I came from documentaries, not Hollywood. And uh, and I thought that that Lucas's handling of those uh, models in, in uh, Star Wars was just absolutely stunning. I mean, I, you've never seen anything like that. The leading edges of the wings were worn. The paint was, you know, had worn down from just like, you know, an airplane. <laughs> and uh, I thought all that was was very effective. So, but he was, uh, you know, I, I, in our parting conversation was basically like. Uh, you know, I've been at this now for a long time, and it's working. So, you know, uh, I said, you're absolutely right. But uh, it was hard for me to get my head into that. So, and I had not, uh, the, the guy who was the, the the guy who was running the writing end of the business, and I've forgotten his name, thank heavens, because I don't want to uh, besmirch anybody's reputation. But, I mean, it was it was really difficult working with him because... I I was brought into the mix by Roddenberry and this producer assumed that I was possibly gunning for his job. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But he didn't know, you know, that that uh he, he apparently he did, he didn't i mean this this producer did not hire me it was Roddenberry and and just dropped me into the mix without explanation so uh the guy who was running that end of the business was was very uh concerned about you know what what i where did i come from and what was i up to and was i out to get his job so as a consequence every idea that i come up with he would uh, shoot down you know, so it was not not really a comfortable situation. And, and uh, on the other hand, I, I loved the the actors and the crowd, and uh, you know, and and Roddenberry himself was fine. But uh, the uh, I, and I was totally unaware of this political component. Somebody told me about it after the fact that that was the reason I was not getting along with this guy because he was suspicious of my motives, and I could not have been more innocent <laughs> because the last thing I wanted to do was be, uh, you know, in, in that guy's spot because it was a terrible spot to be in, you know, for anybody. But uh, it worked for, for Gene and, and it obviously worked for the fans because the Jesus Christ, you know, that when 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 I am introduced, right, like you know, like the murder of Fred Hampton, uh, China Syndrome, uh, Academy nomination, none of that comes up. This is Mike Gray, who once wrote a season for Star Trek. Yay! You know, so uh, that's the the nature of the business. Do they have names? Not like we do. Their names are their whole history. I mean, they say hello, and you get their whole life in one lump? Like that. Save a lot of time on dates. <laughs> do they eat? No, they don't eat. They absorb all the nutrients through their skin and their lungs. If they don't eat and they don't talk, how can they still have mouths? Vestigial organs. Leftovers from the good old days. Now they just use their mouths for sex. <laughs> you kidding, right? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times has... Uh has uh, apparently got it out for me. I'm, I've written two books uh, that uh, have a, a small reputation, but 
everybody who's read them has been, you know, over the top, except for the New York Times. And they, the first one was a book about the space program called Angle of Attack, Harrison Storms and the Race to the Moon. And I'm trying to get that movie made, have been for 15 years. I went out to, uh, to see the uh, rollout of the space shuttle. And um, an art director, and a friend of mine, and I went, and, and uh, was you know they 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 played the theme from Star Trek when the, the first space shuttle, it was the one that that never went into space, it was the Enterprise, and they had the the Air Force Band play the theme from Star Trek, of course, and uh, and uh, Leonard Nimoy made the introduction to the speakers, and this this incredible piece of machinery comes rolling out the hangar doors, you know, open, and there it is, and. And um, so I went over to thank the uh, PR guy from North American Aviation who had uh, made arrangements for us to have press passes out there. And he said, are you boys interested in a real story? Well, <laughs> okay, what are you talking about? And he said, the guy that I used to work for, Harrison A., Stormy Storms, and his stormtroopers, I said, he said, uh, uh, when he designed and built the command module and command and service module and the spacecraft itself, which was literally the first rocket from Earth, he had 35,000 people working directly under him in 15 different factories all over the country. He was one of the guys who helped design the P-51 Mustang, the most successful fighter plane in the history of warfare. And... Uh, he uh, he solved all the problems, delivered the, the product, uh, and, and, and from a standing start uh, to the launch pad, uh, eighteen months ahead of schedule, and uh, it uh, he was not invited to the launch. And I said, "Okay, you got me." And uh, I I spent the next several years. Actually, I spent three years just interviewing the engineers that used to work for him. And Storms himself was alive at that point. I, I interviewed him dozens of times. And uh, as an aeronautical engineer, I, you know, I really understood what the, and I could translate all of that stuff into street language. I knew how to, uh, I grew up on a farm in Indiana and they don't talk like engineers. So I figured that, you know, uh, the, the secret to this is uh, if you force engineers to, to explain every fucking acronym that they use and you just keep asking them questions until you understand what they're talking about, you can then explain it to anybody. And the book was, uh, was incredibly well received by the, uh, the space community and so forth, but the New York Times turned it over to a former PR man from NASA who'd lost his job when Nixon canceled the space program, and this guy was still pissed off about it. So his review, he's he's now a professor of uh, technological history at Duke University, and uh, and uh, he spent most of his review talking about what a disaster it was. The space program was, you know, like terminated and, and all these wonderful people lost their jobs and da 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 And then finally, after railing about the destruction of the space program for the whole goddamn review, he then turns to my screen, or my uh, book and said, apparently Mike Gray believed every anecdote he ever heard. And this is after, you know, five years of work and, uh, and, and 250 taped interviews. Every fact in the book is backed by two or three people who were there at the moment when that scene happened. And it could not have been more thoroughly researched. But when this guy sent that review in, the New York Times, edit, you know, they, they come up with the headline. And the headline they came up with was, The Wrong Stuff. So that, that was five years pretty much down the drain. They, 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 uh, uh, w. W. Norton had books at the airport ready for air shipment to the West Coast. I'm waiting for that review, and when, of course, when that review came out, that killed it, and they canceled everything, and, and the book never went anywhere. So I have spent 15 years now trying to get that screenplay so that I can redeem that story, you know what I mean? And we came within 
you know, an eye blink uh, last year of getting it. Roger Donaldson, who directed uh, The Bank Job and No Way Out. You remember the Kevin Costler uh, film, No Way Out? And uh, he was he did a brilliant job on, uh, he's an Australian, and he read the screenplay for Harrison Storms, and he said, I want this to be my next picture. So uh, we uh, gave him an option, and uh, and they took it to Fox, and Fox said, okay, we'll do the picture, but we want Bruce Willis as Harrison Storms. And that was all right with us. I mean, uh, Willis actually looked quite a bit like Harrison Storms. With a crew cut and a wire rim glasses and a pocket protector with a slide rule, he would have been Harrison Storms. And uh, so we were very enthusiastic about that. And they sent the script to, to Willis, and he wouldn't even read it because he wanted to direct his own picture, and he was in the middle of trying to convince the studio to, to do his movie, and he didn't want the distraction of even reading something else. So that deal collapsed, bang, in one day. And that was uh, so we've been trying to get it off the ground ever since, and and that was a couple of years ago. So... Um, but we were. I, I, nobody reads that script. It's it's a, a great American story. They're the the dedicated to the four hundred thousand people who built that fucking rocket. You know, four hundred thousand people laid hands on some piece of that machine at one point or another, and it's a reminder of what we are capable of. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, uh, this country can do any goddamn thing it chooses to, as long as you got somebody. And I asked Storms before he died. He, he fortunately he read the the manuscript for the book, and uh, but I said, why? Well, you know, there's all this business about the environment, and and uh, we seem to be so stymied, and we're in a ditch all the time. We can't get anything going. And, so, and he says, I'll tell you what. Uh, he said, if you put together a bunch of guys like I had over there in Downey on that command and service module, and you give them a set of specifications, clean specifications like Kennedy gave us, man, moon, decade, you can kiss that goddamn problem goodbye, whatever it is. <laughs> So I've been trying to get that uh, thought into the minds of people through, and this movie uh, certainly has the potential to do that. I'd like to thank Mike Gray for granting us this interview. I've learned a great deal about Wavelength and a great deal about his future projects. I really hope this Harrison Storm's Angle of Attack biopic gets off the ground eventually because it seems like a really fascinating story. I thank you as well for listening to The Pulsing Cinema. Have a great day. 